Notice also that the master returns after a long time, verse 19. Again, the point of the parable is the need for us to be faithful and fruitful during the long delay. Notice that those who have will be given more, just as Jesus said in Matthew 13, 12, where he said, for to the one who has more will be given and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The reward for faithful and fruitful service during the long delay is increased responsibility and a share of the master's joy in the eternal kingdom. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. As Christians, we are called to be faithful and fruitful during the long delay. We started talking about that last week as we began working our way through this sermon by Jesus about the end. In Matthew 24, he reminded us that no one knows the day or the hour. No one can say exactly when the end will come. But here we see that instead of spending our time staring up at the stars trying to figure out the specific timing, we ought to be working hard to make the most of every gospel opportunity we are given. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Hello friends and welcome to Into the Word a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 25. This is the second half of the Olivet Discourse, or the Eschatological Discourse, begun in chapter 24. Here in this chapter, Jesus employs a series of parables to commend faithful and fruitful living during the long delay. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Again, we must notice that any attempt to make Jesus' statement in Matthew 24, 34 refer to the end falls apart upon such verses as Matthew 25, 13. Jesus explicitly says that no one knows the end. No one knows when he will come back. Therefore, 24, 34 obviously refers to the beginning, not the end. This parable in chapter 25, verses 1 to 13, explores the theme of an unexpectedly long delay. 
and stresses alertness and preparedness. The details are less significant and turn upon the specifics of Jewish weddings in first century Palestine. It seems that there were some initial ceremonies that took place at the bride's home, and the groom would go to attend to those with a few close friends. The majority of guests would wait at the groom's home, where the main celebration would occur. Thus, the ten virgins have been appointed to parade the groom as he returns from the bride's house. However, the point of the parable turns on the unexpected delay in the groom's return. He is gone far longer than they all expect. The foolish virgins apparently did not take an extra flask of oil with them. They had only the oil in the lamp. Thus, the long delay proved their foolishness. Those who took extra oil were considered wise for having considered the possibility of delay. That's the point. This parable is telling the disciples of Jesus, be prepared for a long delay. Verse 14, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one, he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master... You delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant! You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant, into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The parable of the talents once again assumes a long delay. It builds upon the emphases of the previous parables. Here we learn that in addition to attending our duties, in addition to remaining prepared and watchful, we must also improve the master's assets while he is away. Now, in English, The word talent often refers to a special gift or ability, such as the ability to sing or play an instrument or excel at a sport or activity. But 
In Greek, the word used here refers to a unit of monetary exchange. A talent was about 65 pounds of gold or silver. A talent in those days was usually considered the equivalent of 6,000 denarii or roughly 600,000 in modern day terms. Thus, we're dealing with considerable sums of money. Five talents equates to $3 million. Notice also that each of the servants is given a different sum of money. God sovereignly determines our gifts and opportunities. Our job is to be faithful and fruitful with what we've been given. The wise servants immediately get to work improving the master's assets. The foolish and wicked servant is afraid to lose and unwilling to work. So he hides his talent in the ground. Notice also that the master returns after a long time, verse 19. Again, the point of the parable is the need for us to be faithful and fruitful during the long delay. Notice that those who have will be given more, just as Jesus said in Matthew 13, 12, where he said, for to the one who has more will be given and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The reward for faithful and fruitful service during the long delay is increased responsibility and a share of the master's joy in the eternal kingdom. Pastor Paul, let me jump in here because I've got a couple of questions already and we haven't even really come to the controversial part of the chapter. I want to start with what Jesus says near the end of the parable about the ten virgins. In verse 5 he says, They all became drowsy and slept. So are we to infer from that that the entire church will be asleep when Jesus comes back to earth? Yeah, I see how you might wonder about that. As always when dealing with parables, we have to try and discern how much of this story is vessel and how much is content. Certain details obviously are going to be necessary in any story just to give it authenticity and to facilitate flow. But other details are going to be foregrounded for symbolic reasons. So which are which? Here, in this case, I don't think the fact that they all fell asleep is intending to communicate total and complete apostasy because, of course, at the end of the story, some are able to enter in with the bridegroom and some are left outside. So the main emphasis in this story seems to be that some were prepared for the long delay by having extra oil in a separate flask and some were not. So be like the wise virgins. Plan for potentially a very long delay. Okay, that's helpful. Now, it does raise another question, and I'm not sure I'm allowed to ask it. That sounds ominous. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll just do that. Uh, Well, Jesus specifically says that no one can know the day or hour, and yet it's pretty common for Christians today to talk about how the return of Jesus might be drawing near just because of everything we see in the world around us. Is there any legitimacy to that, or should we just tune that out and get on with our business? Well, obviously, we need to agree with what Jesus says here. No one knows the day or the hour. I don't know how to be more clear about that. And and then, obviously, we need to pay attention to the lesson of this parable, which is that we need to be prepared for a very long delay. Listen, I would put it this way. If your ministry plan is built around the assumption that Jesus is going to come back in six months or less— then you're just not being faithful to this text. You need to account for the fact that it it could be another 10, 20, 30, 100 years. We don't know. And so we want to be like the wise virgins. We want to have oil in reserve 
in case this goes on a little further than we expect. But is it wrong to anticipate? Is it wrong for us to feel like it has to be getting closer? It's definitely getting closer. Every day that passes puts us closer to the return of the Lord. Well, okay, I know. I get that. <laughs> but it, it does feel like the return of the Lord has to be somewhat imminent. I know what you mean. And, and I understand where that feeling comes from. Listen, the world is changing. Mm-hmm. And Jesus told us to watch the signs. So I don't think there's anything wrong with reading the news through the lens of your biblical faith. I think when we look out at the world, we see a lot of birth pangs going on right now. We see earthquakes, famines, wars, and rumors of wars. Yeah, not to mention persecution, false religion, division, and apostasy, like we talked about last week. Yeah, that too. And, and we see incredible progress in the preaching of the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. So yes, I think it makes sense for us to feel like the return of Jesus must be getting closer. And I would say we should channel that into increased urgency, all the while continuing to invest in long-term strategies and institutions. We should probably maintain a both-and approach until we hear the trumpet sound. All right, that sounds fair. I have another question, but I'll save it till the end of the program because it, it comes out of the story that we're about to read next. So let's get there. Jump back into Matthew 25 now at verse 31. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? and did not minister to you. Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it, to one of the least of these you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Scholars debate amongst themselves as to whether we ought to classify this pericope as a parable. In favor of that classification is the fact that Jesus does make his point by means of a comparison. He says that the king will separate people one from another 
as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Many of Jesus' parables are introduced in that way. Think of how many parables begin with, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, Matthew 13, 45. Or the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground, Mark 4, 26. However, some scholars will argue that this is where the parabolic language ends and that beyond verses 32 to 33, that imagery disappears entirely. And it is not a shepherd speaking to sheep and goats. It is a king speaking to citizens and subjects. Thus, some will say that it is better to think of this as a straightforward prose prediction with a loosely parabolic introduction. Regardless of how you want to classify it, the meaning of the passage is reasonably straightforward. Jesus is speaking here about the final judgment. The theme of delay now gives way to the theme of judgment and consummation. The correct interpretation of this passage hangs upon the proper identification of the least of these my brothers in verse 40. Who are the brothers of Jesus? Well, thankfully, we're not left to wonder over this question as Jesus himself has provided the answer back in chapter 12, verse 48. He said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother, closed quote. In addition, we would also want to consult with Matthew 10, 42, where Jesus says, using similar language, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward, closed quote. Thus, I think we're able to answer with confidence that the least of these my brothers refers to the least and littlest of Jesus' disciples, children, the poor, the vulnerable, and the persecuted from within the covenant community. R.T. France, for example, says concerning the least of these, my brethren, it is a term specially for his disciples, not for men in general. The reference to the least of these in this connection reminds us of these little ones in chapter 10, verse 42, closed quote. It is important to understand that Jesus is not saying that these people became sheep by doing these good things. Rather, they did these things because they were sheep. They were the people of Jesus. They loved what and who he loved. They responded instinctively to the needs of those loved by the Lord because they were filled with the Holy Spirit of the Lord and had been transformed into his image and were being transformed into his image. D.A. Carson puts it this way. Good deeds done to Jesus' followers, even the least of them, are not only works of compassion and morality, but reflect where people stand in relation to the kingdom and to Jesus himself. Jesus identifies with the fate of his followers and makes compassion for them equivalent to compassion for himself, closed quote. He goes on to say, True disciples will love one another and serve the least brother with compassion. In so doing, they unconsciously serve Christ, closed quote. Therefore, Jesus is saying here that on Judgment Day, he will be able to identify his sheep by observing how they have treated those who have identified with him, particularly the least and the littlest. Abuse 
or neglect of the least and little among the body of Christ will be all the proof required to demonstrate that a person is outside and unconverted. The fate of such people is final, just, and irrevocable. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Thanks be to God. Amen. All right, Pastor Paul, I warned you, I've got another question, and I think it's a bit of a doozy. All right, hit me. (laughs) I will, because this episode of the program kind of hit me. I feel like it overturned something in my mind that's been there for a long time. I've always heard this parable as an encouragement to ministry to the poor in general. I think I've heard other Christian leaders use this parable to fundraise for the food bank or whatever. It's pretty common to hear people say, Let's make some soup for the homeless because Jesus said, whatever you do for the least of these, you have done it unto me. But you seem to be saying that isn't what Jesus is saying. He's saying how you are to the church, the body of Christ, is who you are to me. So I'm trying to wrap my head around that, and I'm, I'm not really sure I, I get it. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. And, and I hear what you're hearing, meaning I hear people all the time using this quote, using this story to encourage Kindness and benevolence to the poor. And I want to say, right idea, wrong text. There, there are texts that encourage us toward kindness and benevolence to all people generally. The most obvious of those, of course, would be the parable of the Good Samaritan. But this parable is not about that. This parable is the climax to a sermon about the end. This is about the final judgment. So if you think about that, This can't be saying what the fundraisers say it is saying. I mean, can you imagine if Jesus was actually saying, if you give a sandwich to a homeless person, you will be welcomed into heaven. That would completely upend the gospel. That would be the ultimate works-based salvation scheme. Yeah, okay, when you put it that way, uh, there is no way that it could mean that. And the good news is, it doesn't mean that. The Bible tells us very clearly who Jesus considered his brothers, his family. In Mark 3, 34 to 35, it says, looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother, close quote. So Jesus says that those who gather around him in faith and fellowship are his family. They are his mother, his sisters, and his brothers. And here in Matthew 25, Jesus is saying that at the final judgment, his true disciples will be revealed according to how they have behaved toward their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. They will have been on the right side of the great conflict. They will have been on team Jesus. They will have protected the persecuted. They will have fed and housed those who are being excluded and oppressed because of their faith in Jesus. Again, this is the end of a sermon about the end. And the Bible seems to be saying that as we get closer to the end, because of all these birth pangs and upheavals, the whole world will have been shaken into two camps, the camp of the lamb and the camp of the beast. And the beast is waging war on the lamb. But the people of the lamb, the sheep, they will stick together. They will love each other, no matter the risk, no matter the cost. Remember, Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, 
Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's John 13, 34 to 35. So newsflash, followers of Jesus follow Jesus. They love the people of God, even when it costs them their lives. Now, this is so important. Doing that doesn't make them Christians, but it does reveal them as Christians. That's what this parable here at the end of the eschatological discourse is saying. Wow, that is awesome. I think I like this parable even better now that I understand it fully. And I love that it does not in any way discourage us from showing kindness and compassion to all people everywhere. It doesn't contradict the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's just saying something more specific, something that I think we're going to need to be reminded of in the months and years ahead. Yeah, agreed. Well, as always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 